1 Corinthians chapter 12, this will be our last um, of the longer portions. We're going to look at three chapters this morning. Beginning uh, next week, I'll have a, a little bit of a unique message, more of a, uh, just a, a more topical to fit with the um, context of where we're at and the special service. And then we'll have a few uh, special speakers here for the, uh, the following few weeks. And then in October, we'll start to go through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and we'll deal with the resurrection in a, in a robust way. We're going to take just small pieces and walk through and just see how the resurrection fits in with the rest of the book of Corinthians and how a proper view of the resurrection can really impact how we live our lives. So uh, hopefully you'll, you're planning on being a part of that and will avail yourself for that. Um, again, just a re- little bit of a review, the book of Corinthians, we've titled this series, A, the Ch- a Church in Crisis. And there are several crises throughout the book, and they can be broken down by chapter, or they can literally be broken down by a section or categorized by section. And the way that we've divided it, and the way I think the text flows, is the first four chapters deal with division, and that's the first crisis. The second crisis covers the next three chapters, which is liberalism, an unwillingness to deal with problems in the church, a desire to have no, um, bound, no bounds, no restrictions, no restraints, and, um, and then just an unwillingness in chapter number seven to be content with where God has you. And uh, that's really the essence of the liberalism that's, met, that's discussed in those three chapters. And then last week we looked at chapters eight through 11 and idolatry or uh, living in such a way as we don't consider others and we then press them into... Um, idol worship. And we want to always be mindful of the fact that although we know that we have liberties in Christ, especially those of you who are mature believers, you've been saved for a number of years and you've studied the Word of God, there are a lot of liberties that you have in Christ. And you understand that, but it's, it's important to also note that not everybody does understand that. And so your liberty can be a means by which somebody else stumbles. And especially a weaker Christian might see you functioning within your liberty and, and then they might embrace your liberty, but for them it might be idolatry. And so the Apostle Paul is really warning us to, be, to live a life that is um, dedicated and devoted to, to living for other people. And that's what it's really all about. I, I thought it was interesting as I was going through this week and planning, I, the, one of the verses that came to mind out of last week's study that I thought it would be just, uh, I, I did, we're not dealing with verses, we're dealing with, with portions. So, uh, but a, a verse that hit me that was, I think, pivotal in the, first, in the uh, last section is 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Again, it's dealing with don't, don't use your liberty, don't use your liberty aggressively because it might cause somebody else to stumble. But 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And the, the, the idea of it is, is when, when we think that we've arrived at a certain level, 
We've reached, we think we've arrived where we have, you know, it's like people say, well, you know, I have control over that. It's not a struggle for me. Um, what the Apostle Paul is warning is, is that that's the moment when the devil's going to attack you. When you think you've arrived, when you think you've reached a, a, a place where you've got control, that you would never stumble, that's a very dangerous place to be. And so he warns them, not only live for others, but live to guard yourself from becoming a prey to the attacks that Satan um, can often put on us to drive us into idolatry ourselves. This morning, we're going to look at chapters 12 and 14. Through 14, we're going to read the entire chapter. The primary crisis that's being dealt with here is the crisis of immaturity in the church. And the immaturity is, is, is directly related to spiritual gifts. You'll notice in verse number one, he says, I don't want you to be um, uninformed. And that word there, and it's, it's actually used in this context. And then in the next chapter, in the following chapter, there's this idea of, of, of childlikeness to it. And there's a childlikeness or a lack of understanding in regards to spiritual gifts, which is causing people to, to use them in such a way that doesn't fit in with their purpose. It doesn't fit in with why God gave them spiritual gifts. And so he, he uses a term in each one of these three chapters to describe that, the fact that they're not mature yet. There's, a, there's an immaturity that's, that, that's there, that's present, that needs to be dealt with so that they can then use their spiritual gifts in, a, in an effective way. So as an introduction to that, it's important to note that you might ask the question, what is a spiritual gift, Pastor John? What, I've never heard this talked about before. Um, a spiritual gift is something that God gives us at the point of salvation. When a, when a person uh, becomes a follower of Jesus, they repent of their sins and they place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God's Spirit comes to live inside of them. And when God's Spirit comes to live inside an individual, He brings with Him certain things. So when a person is saved, they become perfectly righteous. God looks down from heaven and he sees me as being perfect, not based upon any merits of my own, but based upon the fact that his spirit lives inside of me and his spirit is now the basis, the presence of his spirit is now the basis of my righteousness. So what he has brought with him is he has brought perfection and he has put it inside of me in, in his person. It's not my perfection. It's not my righteousness. It's totally his righteousness and his perfection. So when, when the Holy Spirit came to live within me, he, he gifted me his perfection so that now God can see me as perfect. We, we want to remember this as Christians that we will make it into heaven because we are perfect but we will not be perfect based on our own merits. We will be perfect based upon the merits of Christ. There's no imperfections that's going to get into heaven. Zero. There'll be no sin in heaven. It is perfect people getting to heaven, but the perfection by which they enter into heaven is not their own perfection. It's a gifted perfection. It's a, the, the word that they, scholars use is imputed perfection. It means that, that it, is, it, is, it is something that is taken from somebody else's account and then credited to our account. So our sins were taken off of us and they were put on Jesus' account, right? And he died on the cross. And then our, his perfection was taken and put onto our account, which makes us perfectly righteous in the eyes of God, which makes us acceptable to him. So that's salvation, but 
in addition to that, when the Spirit comes to live within us and He brings that perfection with Him, He also brings some other things. And one of the other things that He brings with Him is a spiritual gift. He brings a gift and He puts it inside of us or He lives it and works it through us and it's a spiritual gift or we we might call it a supernatural gift. And it's a supernatural ability that God gives us and its purpose is specifically for um, the church. It's specifically meant to function within the church body, within the context of the church. The Bible teaches very clearly in this context, as well as in others, that every Christian has a spiritual gift. You have a supernatural gift. If you're a follower of Jesus and his spirit lives within you, you have a supernatural gift. You say, well, I'm like, I'm like Superman or Batman. or No, you're not like Superman or Batman, but you're actually better than that because your gift is real. You have a real supernatural gift living within you that isn't dependent on your abilities or strengths, but it's dependent on a supernatural being living inside of you. He's brought this gift with him, and the purpose of this gift is to bring the church together. It's a unifying gift. It's a uniting gift. Matter of fact, if you, uh, in your time, in your free time, Ephesians 4 describes it as joints. So if you think of a body, a body is many different parts, and all of those parts are connected by joints. And the Bible refers to spiritual gifts as being joints. It's the part of your body that holds you together. So spiritual gifts are the joints that are holding God's or Christ's body together, which is the church. Does that make sense? Okay. It's good. So with this in mind, and we want to remember this as well, Corinth is all... Corinth is being reprimanded. We know that. There's several different things in their, in their church, in, in the church that has crept in, that are, that are unhealthy things. And the Apostle Paul is reprimanding them really from, from word one. Chapter one, he's dealing with division in the church. So with this in mind, consider the danger of these gift, of these gifts. Consider the danger of a supernatural gift in a church culture that is divided based upon the comparison of people's talents, that is liberalistic, wanting no restraints, and that is idolatrous, that is, it is in the worship of self. You you imagine that these spiritual gifts, these supernatural abilities, it's it's almost like if you, you think about the idea of somebody having an extraordinary power and that power falling into the wrong hands. So in the context of 1 Corinthians, what you have is you have these people that are, that are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they have this supernatural ability that's been given to them by God, but they begin to use it inappropriately. They begin to, to um, act upon it as it relates to their sinfulness, their flesh. And the Apostle Paul is just simply going to correct that. And that's where we get to this fourth crisis the, crisis, the crisis of immaturity, because it ultimately boils down to the church not understanding the purpose and the foundation of these spiritual gifts. That's the main reason why the church is falling apart in their use of spiritual gifts, is that they don't fully understand or grasp why these gifts have been given to them or what their purpose is. 
So that brings us to the crisis of immaturity in the church, which is going to be expressed in three observations, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter number 14. And we're going to unpack those by reading through and talking about them. Chapter number 12 is who are the gifts about? If you want to write, if you're taking notes, these are the questions that we're going to answer. Chapter number 12 answers who's the, who are the gifts about? Chapter number 13 answers the question, what is the purpose of the gifts? And chapter number 14 answers the question, how do we use the gifts? So we'll walk through it together. Please, I pray that you're there in your Bibles, because I'm going to read it, and we're going to do a little bit of unfolding of it between each chapter. The Apostle Paul starts with, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed or other versions might say ignorant here. It's just the fact that they lack knowledge or understanding about the spiritual gifts. Verse number two, he says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So what we have laid out for us right up front is the fact that these spiritual gifts are focused on the glory of God. They're pointed to the glory of God. Matter of fact, he makes it an important statement to say that when you're dealing with spiritual gifts, if you ever remove, if you ever remove God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit from them, then you're not speaking in the Spirit, or you're not, you're not the, it's not the Spirit that's working through you. If your gift brings credit or glory to anything other than than Christ himself, then it is not a spiritual gift, or it is not being used in a spiritual way. That's why he says, if you say Jesus is accursed, you're not speaking in the Spirit of God. Ask relates to your spiritual gift. In other words, if I take credit for my spiritual gift, or if I glorify myself for my spiritual gift, or if I, if I glorify some kind of a mute idol for my spiritual gift, or if I glorify some, something other than Christ for my gift, I'm not speaking in the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, if you go back to the idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which the Lord says is the unpardonable sin, the definition of blasphemy is when we give credit, we give credit, credit that the Holy Spirit deserves to something else. Or we give the Holy Spirit credit for something that he never did. So he says, I want you to understand that at the, at the, at the get-go, the glory, the focus, the praise that these gifts are meant to produce is always going to be focused on whom? It's always going to be focused on Christ. If the gift that you're manifesting and that you're praising and that you're using is not focused on Christ, it is saying that it's not, you may not say Christ is a curse, but you may say Christ is not a part of this. Or you may just simply move the credit to something other than Christ. He says this is not of the Spirit of God. Now he goes on to verse number 4. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but is the same Spirit... There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. 
To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one it is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What I want, to, I want to stop and make a comment here. It's super important that you understand that what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that the spiritual gifts themselves are not what's important. There are people, he's, he's literally making a list of things that the Spirit of God might, might work through this church, but the issue isn't the spiritual gifts themselves. The issue is the object of those spiritual gifts. It is the same Spirit. It is the same Spirit. It is the same Spirit over and over again. He's pointing us not to the spiritual gifts, but pointing us to the one who is the source of those spiritual gifts. He talks about the beginning, there are a variety of gifts. There are a variety of ways to use those gifts. There's a variety of places to use those gifts. But what's important is, what's important? It is the same God. It is the same Spirit. It is the same Lord. And he gives us that list, and he always ends that list with, but it is the same Lord. But it is the same Lord. You want to know why this is? Because the Corinthian people were focusing totally on their giftedness. Their giftedness became a point of pride to them. Look at me, I'm gifted in this way. Look at me, I'm gifted in this way. Look at me, I'm gifted in this way. Totally neglecting the fact that Christ was the one to be glorified by their spiritual gift. You'll see that unfold here in a moment. Verse number 9 to another, let's see here. Verse number 11, all these are, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he sees fit or as he wills. And the word apportion here just literally means to divide. He, he has divided the gifts. He has apportioned the gifts. He has given you a gift as he saw fit to do so. You know, quit praising yourself for something that you have been gifted by the will of God and not by any merit of your own. That's what, he, that's, what he's, that's what he's saying to them. The Bible goes on in verse number 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So here's what he's going to do. He's, now he's going to transition before he was one spirit, all about the one spirit. The spiritual gifts are all about the spirit, but now he's going to transition to they're all about Christ. They're all about the body. It is one body. We are one body. The church is one body. So not any part of the body is more important or more significant than the other parts because we are Christ's body. Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a head, I do not belong to the body, that would not make, any, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smelling? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. Okay? Just make a mental note here. The body is what matters. If you focus on the parts, that's when we get division. That's when we get pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. When we focus on the whole of the body, every part of it matters. I mean, you guys have ten fingers, right? Would it be okay if I just cut one of them off? you still got nine. Would that be okay? No, because the, it's the whole of the body that matters. And that's what he's saying here with, with the body of Christ. It's the whole body that matters. Not each individual part is not significant. It's the whole of the body that matters. And our spiritual gifts are meant to bring that together and to cause that to work uh, in harmony. And he says in verse number 18, God has arranged the members of the body, each one as he has chosen. If, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the foot or to the feet, I have no need for you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. And again, what he's referring to here, he's making an analogy of the physical body with the church body. It's like, don't be arguing about one part not being important and another part being more important, another part being less, support, less important. That is exactly what's happening in Corinth here. This is exactly what Paul is rebuking them, challenging them on the basis of what they're actually doing. People are literally saying, I mean, we have to be able to bring it down to the, to the base level. People are literally saying in the church, well, they're not that important. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to think uh, of somebody actually saying that, but, but unfortunately, it's a reality that we have to face that takes place in our churches. It says in verse 26, if one member suffer, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ. Just underline that, if you will. Now you are the body of Christ. And this is what makes the body significant. This is what makes the church significant, is that we are the body of Christ. We're not the body of John Prettyman. We're not the body of some president or some great historical figure. We are the body of Christ. That puts a great emphasis on, on that body. And that we are a part of that body. Each one of us individually plays a role in that body. But what is important is not the role that you're playing in that body. What is important is the, is the body. It's the body. He 
He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administration, and various kinds of tongues. And he just gives us a list of things that the Holy Spirit might work through an individual in the church. But then he says this, are are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gift of healings, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And what he's throwing out this question is, is that nobody does all of these things. It's not about these things. It's about the wholeness of the body. It's about the unity of the body so that the body may have no schisms in it, may have no division in it. God has structured the body or put it together in such a way that, it will, that the, the uh, gifts that he imparts to you will, will be ligaments to connect you to the rest of the body. And when we don't use those gifts and we don't apply those gifts or we let those gifts become perhaps we believe to be the body parts or we let them become more important than the body itself, then we can destroy the body. He says at the very end, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will, show, and I will still show you a more excellent way. Let me give you some thoughts here as we end chapter number 12. Spiritual gifts are not about the individual who has them. It's very clear in this text. Spiritual gifts are not about the individual who has them, nor are they about the gifts themselves. They're not about the gifts themselves. This text makes it clear when it throws out these lists, it's, it's, it's helping us press into the idea that it's not about the actual gift but it's about the one who is the source of the gift. It's about the Spirit. It's about God apportioning it to each person individually as he sees fit, as he wills. It's about him deciding what gifts are needed and necessary for our day and age today. It's about him working those things out. And if you go, we'll look at the next chapter here in a moment, but he even talks about gifts are going to pass away. These gifts are going to pass away. They're meant for a season. They're seasonal gifts. For times in, our, in, our, in, our, in the church and, and, its, and its growth and its maturing, they're seasonal gifts that the Lord uses. And we put such an emphasis on the gifts that we've lost sight of that reality. It's not about the gifts, it's about the person of the gifts. Gifts are meant to manifest and praise the Holy Spirit. The Bible even calls them that they are the... Um, They are the manifestation of the Spirit. The gifts are the manifestation of the Spirit. We are, when you're using your spiritual gift, it's not you being talented to do something, it's you being submitted to an an alien person inside of you who is carrying out his work and his ministry and his strength and in his ability. Okay? So really, spiritual gifts is not about you being talented or strong, they're about you being submitted and weak. Spiritual gifts have nothing to do with us and everything to do with him, and they're meant to point us to him. Gifts are appointed, arranged, um, apportioned, empowered, and composed by God. We see that throughout the chapter there. Gifts are arranged, displayed, and ordered for the purpose of unifying the church, which is the body of Christ. The church should value gifts as manifesting the spirit, value other members of the body as parts of the body of Christ, and value the whole body of Christ by being unified and selfless. 
In the end, there is one command in this entire chapter, and it's found in the very last verse, where he says to pursue the the, um, higher gifts. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, it's important to understand what are the higher gifts, and all you have to do is go back into the text of Scripture where the Lord says that he puts greater honor on the lesser gifts. So he's not saying to pursue the gifts that are the most prominent gifts, the most significant gifts, the the gifts that are going to cause greater pride. He's telling us to pursue the gifts that are going to cause us to be humbler. Pursue the gifts that are going to be humble gifts. Now listen, God may pull you out like David out in the field and might say, hey, you're going to be the king. But let God do it, not you you be pursuing it. You pursue the shepherding role. You pursue the sheep. You pursue the humbler gifts. You pursue the humbler way. And let God pluck you out and put you into the role of being a leader or a king. The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, right? But he does what to the proud? He resists them. So he says the only command in this text is for us to pursue the, pursue the humble gifts. Pursue the gifts that are the more noble gifts, not because they're more notable, but because they're more noble, because they're not noticeable. I think sometimes we lose sight of that in the church. I, I, talk, to some, I talk to people in the church on a regular basis, and some of the elderly people come to me, and they say, well, what, what can we do? We just don't have the abilities and the strengths that we had before. It's like, listen, that doesn't have any impact on your ability to use your spiritual gift. Be a prayer warrior, That's a powerful part of the body of Christ. But you know what? It's not a noticeable one. I I, I bet if we raised our hands and and we just asked for a show of hands of who knows who the prayer warriors in the church are right now, we probably wouldn't know. Because it's not a notable gift. It's not a noticeable gift. And nobody wants the gift that's not notable or noticeable. But that's the gift that the Lord puts greater honor on. And he puts greater honor on it, not because it's more honorable. He puts greater honor on it because he knows, his purpose is is that there be no schisms. If he puts greater honor on the honorable gifts, then there'll be greater schisms, division. Let's go on to chapter 13. Verse number one, he says, And if I speak in the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is, let me say this to you. Love is not a spiritual gift. Love is a means by which you use your spiritual gift. What he's talking about in verse, in, in chapter number 13 is what is the purpose of our spiritual gifts? Why does God give us spiritual gifts? What is his, what is his reason for giving us spiritual gifts? It is so that we can love. It is so that we can love. Watch what he says. He says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have and, I, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. 
If you look at that and you take those things that he's mentioning in there, what he's referring back to is the spiritual gifts that were talked to talked about in the previous passage of Scripture. In other words, if you had every spiritual gift, you had the highest of spiritual gifts and the lowest of spiritual gifts, you had every spiritual gift wrapped up in a blanket and they were all yours and you were able to use them, but you did not have love, you are worthless. That's what he's saying. Those spiritual gifts mean nothing if they have not been ministered or they have not produced a love within you for people and for God. They will accomplish nothing. They, you can have the greatest supernatural powers within you, but if you haven't allowed those supernatural powers to produce love for other people, those supernatural powers will simply be destructive. That's what he's saying here. If you do not manifest... if the, if the If these gifts don't produce love in you for other people, then they haven't accomplished their purpose. Go on, he says in verse number four, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not... Rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Here's how we use our spiritual gift. Here is the purpose of our spiritual gift. God has given us this gift so that we might love other people. And when we love other people with our spiritual gift, our spiritual gift becomes patient It becomes kind, it becomes humble, it becomes um, helpful, it becomes not irritable or resentful, it does not boast about itself, it does not talk about itself. Matter of fact, it it bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. And he says this, love never ends. And then he goes back to the spiritual gifts. He says, as for prophecies, they will, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. What he's saying is he's talking about that seasonal thing. But you know what's not seasonal? What's not seasonal is the love that these things can and should produce. He says, for we know in part, but we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be put away. Watch verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Do you know what he's referring to there? He's referring back to the way that they talked in the last chapter. Hey, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I've got this gift. I, I got this. It sounds like kids, right? I'm good at this, and I'm good at this, and I'm really good at this, and I'm better than you at this. My dad can beat your dad up. My dad's smarter than your dad is. It sounds like a bunch of kids, right? That's what was happening with the spiritual gifts. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I acted like a child. I I competed like a child would compete. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And what he's saying is, is when I became mature, when my spiritual gifts reached their maturity, what was the result? What was the result? Love. When my spiritual gifts reached maturity, the result was love. He goes on to say, he reiterates it again with another another. Uh, symbol here, another picture, analogy. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but I shall know fully, fully, even as I have been fully known, known by God, known in love. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Remember this, the purpose of gifts isn't to praise or divide the church, but it is to love others. To say that I'm a, to, to praise your gift, to exalt yourself with your gift, to, to compete with others because of your gift is childish. It's immature. You have been given that gift so that you can then work that gift because you love the body of Christ. If your gift is not built around your love for the body of Christ, your gift will be destructive. The purpose of our gifts is to produce love within us. The maturity of our gifts is to produce love in us. Remember, the better way that he speaks of here isn't another gift, but it is the right way to use our gifts. We are to use our gifts to lovingly serve others. Galatians 5 and verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your liberty or your freedom as an opportunity to the flesh, but rather love one another. Love, but rather through love serve one another. And then he says that there are three Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. In other words, you can live life and use your gifts in hope. You can, you can live life and use your gifts in faith. Neither one of these are bad, is it? Are they? You can, you can live life and use your gift in hope. You can live life and use your gift in faith. Amen? And we should. You can live life and use your gift in love. And the greatest of these is what? It's not my words. The greatest of these, the greatest motivation for your spiritual gift to be used in the body of Christ is not faith and it's not hope. Although those are great motivations, the greatest motivation for us to use our spiritual gift is that we love the people sitting around us. And we love God. Amen? There is no command in chapter number 13 at all. However, chapter number 14, I believe, starts with the command for chapter number 13, which is pursue love. That's the command. First two words of chapter number 14 is pursue love. And I believe that they are meant to tell us this is the command for chapter number 13. Chase it. Pursue it. It's not going to be easy but it's something that through discipline and submission to the Spirit of God can happen. Number three, the last chapter, verse four, chapter 14. How do we use our gift? There's instruction on actually how to use our, your gift. Who are the gifts about? They're about God. They're about the Holy Spirit. They're about Christ's body. What is the purpose of the gifts? That we might love each other and we might love God through the use of our gifts. Lastly, it's just simply this. What is the purpose of our, or what, how should we use our gifts? Let's go ahead and read together verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to uh, men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. 
And just underline that if you want to. He, he literally tells us that the purpose of the spiritual gifts is for upbuilding, for uh, encouragement and consolation. That's the purpose of the spiritual gifts. Now I want to tell you, let's see here, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Notice that again, so that the church may be built up. In other words, prophecy is more powerful than tongues if people understand what's being said, but if people don't understand what's being said, then... It means nothing. If you take prophecy and you put it in another language and you bring an interpreter in, it's just as healthy as prophesying would be. And prophesying in this text is preaching, and tongues in this text is just other languages. There were other languages being spoken to the body of Christ that there were not hearers that could understand it. It wasn't gibberish. There wasn't anything to do with the gibberish that we hear today or we see on television. That was not the emphasis of the tongues. The word tongues here in the Greek literally means languages. There were many different languages. So if I were to bring in a, a missionary in our church today from, from, say, Russia, and he were to come in here and he were to spill out a great message in the, in the Russian language, who would it benefit? It would benefit no one, would it? Except it would edify, it would lift him up like, whoa, look at that guy, he can speak in Russian. But if he brought an interpreter with him and that interpreter said, here's what he said, then it becomes just like prophesying. The issue is, is, it, is if you understand it, it makes a lot more, it's a lot more helpful to the body of Christ, right? If you don't understand it, it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't help anybody. And that's what, he, that's what he's trying to describe here. And I'd say this, the whole thing of tongues, I think that was the issue of their day. I just would say that um, the emphasis is, 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 is on tongues based upon the fact that it was their main issue, but the emphasis more so is on the fact that we use our gifts not to build up the body. Whatever gifts it is, if you don't use it to build up the body, it's missed its purpose. And we can focus on tongues, and that's what the Apostle Paul does, but literally, if you don't use your gift to build the body up, you're not using it for its purpose. It is meant to build people up. And so I, I might go and I might learn another language, or the Lord might give me the ability to speak in another language, and maybe I become a missionary to another country, and God gives me a supernatural ability to speak in their language, and I can go and I can preach to them, and I come back here to, 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 uh, to show you how eloquent I am at speaking in their language. It doesn't benefit you. It benefits me, unless I have an interpreter. That's what he's dealing with here. And in the first century, they were given this gift because the, the, the gospel had not spread into all the world, and there were many languages that did not have the gospel, so the apostles were given the ability to speak in their language. Or the people were given the ability to hear in their own language. But it wasn't, it wasn't gibberish. It was a language. So, let, let's go on. Um... Now, verse 6, now, brothers, I come to you speaking in tongues. Now, I come to you speaking in tongues. How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an, inst an instinctive sound, who will get ready for battle? So with, so with yourselves, if, you, if with your tongue... You utter speech that is not intelligible. How will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. 
There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a, it will be a foreigner. I will be a foreigner to you, to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. In other words, if I don't know the language, it's not going to be helpful. What's the purpose of spiritual gifts? To build up the church. If I'm speaking in an unknown language, it's not going to build up anybody. Verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing praise with my mind. In other words, I will sing praise and I will pray with an understanding language, with an understandable language to me. What does it mean? Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I may speak in tongues more than all of you. And the Apostle Paul was noted for his ability to speak in many different languages. When you study the scriptures, you see him speaking in many different languages. This was one of the gifts that God had given him. Verse 19, nevertheless, in church, I would, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. There's that childish thing again. Where he says, don't be childish. Don't be childish. Be mature in your thinking. Understand in your understanding in your thinking, in your use of your spiritual gifts. The Bible says in verse 21, in the law it is written by, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not say, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convinced by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all be, thung, let all be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let it be only with two or, or at the most three, and, eat, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there be no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace, as is in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silence in the church, for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. 
Or was it from you that the Lord, that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Let me just say this. This is difficult instruction, especially in the 21st century culture that we live in. And I just want you to note what he says at the end of the, this short little section about um, who speaks in the church and who doesn't. He says, are you the one who wrote the word of God? He just lays it out really clearly that these are God's instructions. Remember this. God created things, right? And when God created things, he created an order. And his order works. There's very few people that have ever tried it, so we don't really know. We have very few that actually try to put into practice the things that God's word says. When it comes to relationships, when it comes to roles, when it comes to, to all of those things, we haven't, we're, a, we're a culture that doesn't, doesn't use the things of God, so we don't really know if they work or not. But listen, they work. And the idea of submission for a woman, it works. I know it's not fun to hear, but it, it works. When God created the order that he created, he created it in such a way that the, the, perfect, the perfect family, which we all want, right? that the role for the wife would be a role of submission. It's how he ordered it. And then he created it in such a way that the role of the husband would be that he would be the leader in the home. I know this sounds weird, but it's not weird. It's Bible. It's been taught for thousands of years. It's just been totally overlooked in our culture today. And what he's saying here is, is, listen, I created things. I'm the one that gives these gifts. Hey, don't forget chapter number 12, God is the author and the administrator of these gifts. So he puts them into place in such a way that he knows what's going on. He knows how it works best. We do things God's way and things just, I don't know, they work better. He says... Um, Verse number 35, uh, verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. What we learn from chapter number 14 is simply this, that God has designed a way for these gifts to be used. Okay? God has designed a pattern for these gifts to be used. And as the creator, he has the right to design the pattern, doesn't he? When God created the world, he created a way in which the world would work at its best, right? He created a plan and a pattern that the world could function in such a way that it would be the best way for the world to function. Adam and Eve messed it up, and we all followed suit. He gave us his word because he wanted to remind us of the way that he wants the world to function. And who knows better than he does? I mean, I don't know. Maybe the creator doesn't know better than the creation, but the last time I checked, I think he does. He has the one who created us. He knows our minds. He knows how they function. He knows when A and B connect, and he gets it all. You know, scientists have tried to work through these things, but, but God knows even more than they do. Amen? He ordered it, and he says, this is the way it best works. It's like, a, it's like somebody who created a machine, right? And they write a manual, and Joe Blow comes in, and he's like, get the manual. I'll work with the machine, and I'll figure out how it works best. 
No, he, he made the machine, and he made all the cranks, and he made everything to flow in, so, in such a certain way that it doesn't blow up, right? So he knows best about that machine. And listen to me, God created everything, and he knows best about the machine. And so he's ordered it in such a way that we need to understand and respect his order because it's the best order. I've often said, man, serving God and doing things his way isn't because it's a list of rules and regulations that he's given us, but rather it's because it's the best way to do things. It's the best way to do things. It's like, I'm not doing this because it's commanded. I'm doing this because it's the best way to live life. God is the one who has designed these gifts and given them to us and apportioned to them us in the way that he's apportioned them to us and he has a plan for them and we need to be respectful of that. Remember these things. Gifts should be used for building up the whole body. So every gift should be used to build up the whole body, not a portion or a subset of the body. Building up means to encourage, comfort, exhort, edify, and inform. That is what the Lord has called us to do. The gifts are meant to do this, to accomplish this. Gifts are never meant to edify an individual. If a gift edifies an individual, it should be reevaluated, or at the very least, the use of it should be reevaluated. Gifts should be used in an orderly fashion. God is not the author of confusion, as we see in the text, or disorder. He shows his order in the book of Genesis. He shows his orderliness in the book of Genesis. And he desires for us to function in such a way as to display his orderliness. Remember, the gifts of the Spirit are the manifestation of the Spirit. Not the manifestation of us. So we should, we should use the gifts in, in the orderly fashion that he has given us in the book. Which he tells us here what it looks like. Not chaotic, not disorderly, not confusingly, not in ignorance. We use the gifts to build up the church and we use them in orderly fashion. And then lastly, God gifts should reveal God's design for things. The church is to reflect God's design in the gifts. We read in chapter number 10, the Bible talked about men having short hair and women having long hair. You remember that? And we talked about how it's important that we reflect on God's design for things. In that culture, long hair on long hair meant submission, and short hair meant authority. And what they were saying is, is, hey, represent God well. Even in the way you cut your hair, represent God well. What he's saying here is represent God well in his gifts. Represent God's order well. So Paul tells women that long hair on men is a shame and short hair on women is a shame. Why? Because of what it displayed. What he was telling them was represent God's order well. In the same way, he closes out this chapter with it. Spiritual gifts are about God and not about us, and it makes sense for us to then work with them in regards to his design and order. In the end, the danger of spiritual gifts is that the church confused, the church confuses who they are about, what they are meant to accomplish, and how they are to be used so that the gifts become a hindrance to the church and not a help. The solution is simple and, taught, and it is taught in imperatives in the text. Desire the humble gifts. Chase after the humble gifts. 
Pursue the gifts that are humble, the lower gifts, and let God elevate whatever he chooses to elevate. Pursue the lower gifts. The second command is pursue love for God and others as the main purpose for your gift. The gifts are not meant to be praised, nor are they meant to praise you, but they are supernatural tools of God to be used to love others with. And then strive, in chapter number 14, strive to build up the church. Pray for your gift. Do not be like children in understanding, but rather be mature. Be diligent to uphold the orderliness and design of God in using your gift. And I just close with a few questions. Do you know what your gift is this morning? Do you know what your gift is? Number two, have you learned to use it solely out of love for God and others? Or maybe another word for that would be mainly or supremely out of love for God and others. And are we respectful of his order and design in how we are using our gifts for the glory of God? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this instruction that we have from your word, and we pray that um, you'll just help us learn from it. And we've, been, we've been given great gifts. Each one of us has a, a strength um, that the Spirit brings for the purpose of melting the body together, um, connecting it, unifying it. And, and yet, Lord, we can sometimes get a hold of these things and we mess them up. So I just pray that you would give us understanding, give us maturity in our thinking as it comes to these things for your glory. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. 